Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Gino Munari. His last name is spelled M-U-N-A-R-I. He just published January 12th, 2022. Very interesting book. Very well researched about the subject I'm interested in, which is Vegas and early Vegas. Title of his book is Las Vegas's Dunes Hotel, Casino, and Country Club, The Mob, The Connections, The Stories. And Mr. Benari has written other books. There's a lot of books written by him about magic, card tricks. I'm not going to list them all, but you can see them on Amazon. So he's definitely been writing. He moved to Las, uh, Gino Minari, moved to Las Vegas in 1964 and was involved in all facets of the gambling and hospitality business. He was an adjunct professor at UNLV from 1980 to 1985. He was also a weekly columnist for the Herald Examiner's West Coast Supplement, Vegas Magazine. And his website is his full name. So it's www.genomunari.com. And you can look and learn about the book there. But again, it just was recently published. So Gino Minari, thanks for coming on the show and agreeing to the interview. Uh, thank you, William, for inviting me on. It's a pleasure indeed. Awesome. And well, congratulations. Uh, awesome. Well, congratulations on the book. I know you have a long history in Vegas. Maybe you can just kind of talk about a little bit of your career background and then what led you to put together this book, Las Vegas' Dunes Hotel. Well, I, I graduated high school out of Burbank, California, and uh, that was in June of 1964. And uh, that week I moved to Las Vegas with about 40 bucks in my pocket. And uh, I had a grandmother that was up here and I stayed with her and I went to UNLV and I got a job at the Sahara Hotel which I have a cousin who was one of the original founders of that hotel. Came down here from Montana with um, Milton Prell, and they built the Sahara Hotel, which was like in the 50s, 52 or so. And uh, I got a job as a busboy. I started at the bottom. And uh, then uh, six months later, they moved me into the dealer's room, which was a room where all the dealers had their 20-minute break. They'd work 40 or an hour on, or 45 and, and 15 off, uh, and they go to this little room and have coffee. This was all during their shift. So I got to know all the dealers, and I listened to all the stories, and I was fascinated by gambling, and I basically learned how to deal listening to these guys. And then I, when I turned 21, uh, I went downtown to uh, Frank Skibo, who was my cousin. He built a place, they had a place they bought called the California Club which was the old California club, not to be confused with Sam Boyd's California Hotel. And they had the Pioneer Club and they had the Elwell Hotel. And I got a job there as a slot department, uh, kind of a host and a floor man, you might say. And then the, I worked there six months, nine months. And then I went into the games department where I learned some of the 21 games. And I learned 21 and roulette and a little bit of craps. And... Uh, then uh, when I turned, uh, stayed there for a few years, and then I, I said, you know, it's time to go out to the strip maybe and get a job. So I went out to out to the Flamingo and did a, uh, they call it a, 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 an audition. That's what you call yourself when you go out and ask for a job. They put you on the table. You see if you can deal. And if you can deal, they may put you to work. They may put you on a, a list if there's no openings and call you back. So I, I got done with my audition at the Flamingo, and the guy said, you're not ready yet. 
And so I, I felt I was. I spent my time downtown. But that was a real prestigious job, and you know they didn't have any openings. So I said, oh, thanks. And I went outside, and I looked across the street, almost catty corner, was the Dunes Hotel. I said, I'm going to go over there and ask, see if I can audition there. I did that, and they hired me right on the spot. So that was the start of it. And then worked in the 21 Fit for uh, six, seven months. And I'm, at home, I, we, we had a layout from a Baccarat table. And it, me and a friend of mine uh, started learning Baccarat together. And we practiced and practiced counting. That was dealt with real money, by the way, currency. Uh, the only game in Las Vegas that was dealt that way. We didn't use casino chips other than if somebody was betting, you know, like $4,000 a hand. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm learning the game at home, and I really don't know it. And, I, and I, we used to watch the bosses at the dunes and see what kind of mood they were in. If they were in a good mood, you know, you could approach them and, and ask them a favor request something. So, so I said this one day, this guy, Mr. Duckworth looked like a, George Duckworth looked like he was in a decent mood. So I caught him as he was walking out of the pit. And I said, Mr. Duckworth, I'm learning Baccarat at home. And I'd love to go over and practice on my own time for nothing. Don't want any money. Just, just to learn. He says, get yourself two tuxedos and start tomorrow. I said, wait a minute. He walked away from me. I didn't even know the game. So I got two tuxedos and I started Thursday night and that was the start of a pretty long run in Baccarat to Dunes. And uh, a very wow. unique job. It was like uh, the best job you could get. I was only 22 years old. And so uh, it was uh, quite an experience. And, and how uh, long How long did you uh, deal Baccarat for? Uh, I dealt, I think, about six years. Then I was on the floor for two years. So, uh, you know, you just you, those guys just didn't leave those jobs. You know, something had to happen. Uh, and, you know, the floor men were in were the casino tips or the tokes, we called them. And uh, so one day when I'm dealing, <clears throat> you know, I get off the, the side where you call the hand. That's called the stick. That's where the dealer calls the hand, like players three, banker five, stand, so forth and so on. And uh, I came around the corner to go to the other side called the base side. One of the floor men, who was very nice to me, he said, Can you come here a second? He said, would you, he didn't do it very loud. He did it kind of quietly. He said, I can't, I had something wrong with my eye. I had a little problem today. I can't quite make that out. Can you please read that for me? And I read this thing and, and I, I was thinking, I explained it to him and I said, you know, I'm thinking in my head, I think it was easy to read. I, I think maybe he had trouble with some of the bigger words in English. He was from Brooklyn and he was a guy that was basically a use and these and that guy. He was the nicest guy in the world. Vic, Vinny Taglia Latella. And he kind of took a, a liking to me after that. I mean, uh, like a, a personal, he took me under his wing and he taught me everything there was to know. And this guy, I had no idea. He was a Shylock. That's a money lender who lends, you know, for so much percent a week. The juice, they call it. And if you, you borrow 100 bucks, you pay 5%, $5 a week, and you still owe the $100. And he was also a big better, a bookie. I had no idea, you know, about all of it. But, uh, you know, little by little, you know, him and his wife were so nice. They invited me to their house to have a meal on Sunday. It was like living with my parents, you know. Uh, my dad was had died, and uh, he was almost like another dad to me. He was just a nice guy. And from there on, you know, uh, 
I was around the dunes and I witnessed a lot of stuff. So I thought it would be fitting to maybe memorialize this because I really believe that the dunes owners that I work for, I think they would have liked it. I think they would have been proud of it as long as it was told correctly without any, uh, you know, any literary license, which there's none in my book whatsoever. Uh, I wouldn't write anything unless I could, could have a, a backup source. There's a couple places where I, I have to come to a conclusion, and I, and I say that. Uh, it could have been this or it could have been that, but, uh, you know, or it could have been this. And some of that is strictly speculation on my part, but uh, there's not too much of that. I try to get be as accurate as I possibly can. And right, so, and you you mentioned Duckworth in your book, so you meet or met some of these owners that uh, you know they, Dunes changed change in ownership much more than I thought. After reading your book, I was surprised. Yeah, there was quite a few major corporations. Maybe you can go back to like you talk about a lot of history. I mean, you really to go back to where gambling started in the U.S. and and the movement to Vegas and all of these characters. Maybe you can just go back, talk talk about vintage Las Vegas, the barn, how it all started. Well, the barn how you're talking about was, was not Las Vegas. That was in New Jersey. Right. Right. And uh, uh, that was a guy who was a, one of the Baccarat managers at Caesars Palace when they opened in 1966. was a guy by the name of Larry Snow. And Larry Snow's real name was Snofsky, S-N-O-F-S-K-Y. And he was the Baccarat manager at Caesars. Now, Caesars, you know, was pretty mobbed up as well as the Dunes was. And uh, uh, from FBI reports that I've read and I have, um, they, they surmised that a gangster from New York, his name is Fat Tony Salerno, uh, was one of the biggest stockholders at Caesars Palace. And Fat Tony Salerno, you know, was an associate of... of uh, Larry Snow, as was uh, Joe Adonis, and a few other guys. And so it's really funny, uh, when I did a search and a background on Larry Snow, he was in Cuba, he worked in Havana, he represented a couple of guys. But one interesting thing is that he was a limo driver. I had a, I had a garage in, in, um, in, in New Jersey, and it was just on the other side of the Washington Bridge, out of Manhattan in New York. And they would take their their limos and fill them up full of people and pick them up at certain locations and bring them over to the Washington Bridge and uh, take them to a place called The Barn and a couple of other places that were operated by Moretti, Adonis, and a lot of other big-name guys. And uh, so... Uh, uh, it's really funny in 19, in the late 30s, I believe it was, or when Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped, you know, uh, uh, one of the big mobsters in New Jersey, you know, gave $30,000 to Lindbergh, to Lindbergh, Lindbergh family, you know, to show a good faith. Because, you know, they, they could do anything they wanted there in New Jersey. The cops looked the other way. They gambled. The only thing they, they didn't do was prostitution and drugs. Because they had to, they have a local community, and they, they wouldn't stand for that. The gambling, they figured it didn't bother anybody. So he gave a big uh, reward to the finder of the whoever killed that baby. Incidentally, Larry Snow, who was the Baccarat manager at Caesars, 
went to the FBI and told them the guy that represented the killer came into his garage to have a repair done. He had a, a bent fender and a, he did a paint job on it. So I found that in the New York Times. I thought that was an amazing, amazing story. Impressive. So, uh, you know, Caesars, you know, was a, was a big joint and it was f filled up with various guys from the East. Well, uh, the Dunes, you know, kind of like uh, was there before Caesars was built. And so, you know, they had a lot of the same players, a lot of the same gamblers and so on. But um, kind of lost track here. I got off. Well, you were talking kind of about the early part of uh, the Dunes because a lot of the original investors were involved in other gambling operations throughout the country, right? Al Gottsman was connected yeah. to Lansky. You said he had 50 gambling operations around the country. So they were getting money before they decided to go to Vegas, right? Yeah, Lansky, yeah, Lansky had a lot of operations around the country, but he wasn't directly involved in the dunes um, as so much as an incident that happened. But all those guys were connected. They were connected in one way or another. And uh, uh, the dunes basically didn't really get rolling. Uh, you know, Gottsman just couldn't make it, so he sold it to the Sands. So the Sands, that was Lansky and all those other guys in New York. And uh, the Sands couldn't make any money with it. So they decided to get rid of it, and in came in a couple of other partners that were original uh, Dunes guys. Was Major Riddle, and he brought in a guy by the name Bill Miller, who had the Miller's uh, place just over the bridge in New Jersey. He, he had gambling there as well uh, himself, but some of the people that he was associated with. So he came in, and they turned the Dunes around, and. Uh, uh, they started bringing in up and back junkets from LA and Phoenix, you know, overnight trips on an airplane, you bring 200 bucks, you stay all night and you leave the following morning. And that's, that was kind of like the thing that turned the dunes around. They had good entertainment. They had the Minsky Follies in there. And uh, then the major riddle came in and purchased uh, uh, a stock from uh, Gottlieb who owned the building. And he didn't own the business. He owned the building and the land. So they let the M&R, uh, Riddle, and uh, Miller, and, and Riddle come in there, M&R Investment Company. And they came in there and they, they operated. And then, you know, there were some issues with Major Riddle. I found a, a, a memo from the FBI that the in, internal uh, bosses at the Dunes Hotel caught him stealing the neighborhoods of forty to $50,000 a month. So, so they basically had it. I think they had a big talk with him, and that's when uh, uh, Sid Wyman, George Duckworth, Charlie Rich, and, and all and some others came in there and started operating the place in 1961. And uh, from there, they never looked back until it was uh, basically exploded, uh, imploded rather. Excuse me. It wasn't right. imploded, but it was also it, it, they had bombs and they made a movie with the thing. But uh, it was a great success. But really made the dunes though. They had everything of the finest you could offer. The finest steakhouse, uh, Sultan's Table, with magical violins. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful. The best food you possibly could have. They had the, the uh, uh, Dome of the Sea, which was a little seafood restaurant, where a little girl rode like a little kind of a floating boat with a harp, and she played music with a harp. It was wonderful. Kippy Lou, her name was. They had the top of the strip, 
where you could look at the, the beautiful view. Uh, they had two lounges. They had a sh major sh oh, and a major showroom. Uh, it was Casino de Paris. Wonderful French review with 100 actors and actresses. It was unbelievable. And they, they, they had everything. It was a city within a city. And uh, but really it made it like work. They, sorry to interrupt, but it seems like they had learned from the mistakes of the past about marketing and getting people in there and getting the right acts, right? That Al Gottesman may not have been as skilled about. Yeah, yeah Gottesman wasn't a gambler. He was a he was an operator who thought big, and he spent more money on a show that that, that had this actress Vera uh, uh, Vera Miles. No, not Vera Miles. I'm thinking of. Uh, oh, hold on a second. I got it. So many people uh, on the show. But anyway, right, Vera uh, Vera Ellen, and she Vera she Ellen. was like unbelievable. But the show was just overrun in cost and it was expensive and it just wasn't the right right thing and so uh bill miller who had the riviera in new jersey over the Washington bridge he was an entertainment genius he, he was, he's the guy that brought the beatles to las vegas uh okay. he's the one that brought uh, barbara streisand to the international and he, he was a genius uh and so so they turned it around but then they, they had some conflicts and bill miller decided to leave and he went his other way and he worked for the Sahara and International later on. Genius guy. His daughter, Judith Miller, is one of the top, was a top uh, reporter on NBC for a long time. Oh, wow. Uh, that was his and daughter. A, and a great, and a great uh, book writer. She was the one that wouldn't reveal a source. And she went to jail rather than reveal a source in her book. So these guys, these guys were smart. But what turned the dunes around? What really was the move is when they brought junkets from New York City. They took the people out of New York best gamblers they could find and they had guys that knew who to find the best gamblers uh, you know bookmakers and money people restaurateurs they knew who they were and they brought them to the dunes three days two nights all you can eat all you can drink just gamble a little bit put five thousand dollars up in front line or more and maybe even less sometimes and he'd fill the plane up with 250 passengers they'd be there time sunday afternoon comes they lost all their money now this 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 happened every two weeks that was the real, the real move that made the Dunes an outstanding hotel. And it really was kind of a status icon in the 60s and 70s, right? Really in the vintage time of Las Vegas. Is that correct? It was. It was a major place. It was class. It wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't a, it, 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 it was just shining. It was just, in fact, Howard Hughes, when he moved out to the Desert Inn, before he moved to the Desert Inn, he sent his uh, particular frontman, uh, Mayu, out to, to rent rooms at the dunes. So he rented a, uh, two floors on top of the dunes, and they, they put all the phones in that he needed and everything, and he never moved in. They were empty, but they were being paid for. QP uh, Rich was Charlie Rich. That was uh, Sid Wyman's partner, George Duckworth's stepfather. You know, he said, we can't do this. We need him for our players. So they, they asked him to leave. And then he left and he went to the Desert Inn. And that was an interesting thing. And uh, the dudes only had a thousand rooms. All those those penthouse rooms and those tower suites were really nice. And so, you know, somebody on the New York junket, they want the best. And the gamblers deserve the best. And that's what they did. Uh, you know, and the, owners, the owners of, 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 in the 61... Uh, Duckworth, Wyman, Sid Wyman, George Duckworth, uh, Charles Cupy Rich. 
they're from St. Louis, and they were they were big time gamblers back then, big bookmakers. I mean, they knew their stuff. And uh, and St. Louis, uh, Charlie Rich had a little boxing gym, and and that's how he met Cary Grant. And they became lifelong friends. Cary Grant used to come to the dunes all the time, and uh, he was always friendly with everyone. And he was a he was kind of a spokesman for the dunes to help find entertainment and so forth. Uh, but when they moved to Las Vegas, you know, they knew what they were doing. They were big time. I mean, they were they knew gamblers from all over the world because they used the Western Union wire service to get bets to bring them to their booking house. And uh, they paid the, the writers a commission and gave them gifts. It was like unbelievable. Nobody ever thought of that before. Right. So they were forward thinking. And there was always an undercurrent of mob connections, right? Even from the very beginning. In, yeah, there in, was. In, uh, you know, there was. From St. Louis, you had a lot of guys. And a couple of the guys that came to work at the Dunes were all connected. You know, uh, with a couple of guys back there, uh, uh, Savella, uh, uh, Giordano, uh, and they were kind of the local uh, mob guys in St. Louis. And I'm sure that they got they had to got to, they had to get to know each other through, either through gambling, wagering, and bookmaking, and laying off, and so forth. And uh, who knows if they put a street tax on them? But I know Savella. Uh, who was in Kansas City, and he was a, a guy that went to jail, you know, over the Tropicana and the Stardust Hotels of Skimming. Uh, he approached the, the owners of the Dunes when they were at the Riviera. Uh, so Wyman, Duckworth, and, and Rich were at the Riviera in the 50s. And uh, we have a memo, a confidential memo from the FBI that uh, they found out that Savella wanted to buy into the Riviera. And uh, Wyman turned them down, and a couple of owners turned them down, and, and they left the Wyman left the Riviera. They came and they ran the, the Dunes Hotel. So they were all connected. But then in the late 70s, like 75, uh, 76, Savella showed up at the Dunes Hotel as a guest, and uh, on his room uh, check-in, there was a note that said, "Give the man anything he wants." And uh, of course, the Dunes got called on the carpet for this. And uh, what's interesting, uh, they, they got fined $50,000 for having this guy from Kansas City, Kansas City Mafia guy, come and stay at the Dunes. So he was a persona non grata. But uh, so the Dunes had to go to the Gaming Control Board uh, hearing and, and fight this, this charge of a $50,000 fine. And also that the major owner, Sid Wyman, come forward for suitability hearings and get another license. So their lawyers who were great lawyers, Jones and Jones, uh, and the one Jones was one of the original lawyers for the original conception of the dunes under Gottsman, who was the original builder of the dunes. Uh, they got the fine reduced to $10,000 and Sid Wyman didn't have to come before the board for a suitability hearing. Now, what kind of juice is that? That's incredible. I mean, this is incredible days. So it was a great, great place. And, you know, they, they gave donations to everyone. Anyone that asked, they, they got something from them. So they were, they were well-liked in the community. Uh, you know, there was no bad feeling about these guys. You felt good about them. And uh, they ran a great operation. And it sounds like that, like uh, Rich, who was friends with Cary Grant, the people said he was very generous, giving money around. 
but he also had to show up in front of the Kafauver Commission, right? So there are all these words. That was an interesting meeting uh, when they they had Rich on the stand, and Rich and they wanted to know why he was out in Las Vegas uh, with all this money looking to buy into something, and uh, they questioned him about Lansky, uh, Meyer Lansky, the tremendous. He was called the kind of like the mob's accountant. That, that's a typical term you hear. But he was a genius when it came to gaming. He knew about gambling. He knew how to set it up. He knew how to make it work. Uh, uh, this is an interesting story because uh, before the dunes, before the Wyman, anyway, back to the Flamingo hearing, and Rich is on the stand. He's looking to buy into something. And uh, they really put him over the coals. And they wanted to know who he knew here. And, and did he buy in? Well, he didn't buy into the Flamingo. But he, he heard about it through Lansky. There's no doubt about it. So then, before the dunes opened, I mean, before they took over the dunes in 61, they had a deal for the Thunderbird Hotel, which supposedly was really controlled by Meyer Lansky. And uh, it was in the newspapers. There's, I got plenty of references to it. And they were going to open and take it over under a new company and run it. And it was all getting ready to close. And all of a sudden, they didn't do that. And they went to the dunes. They got that deep, the partnership, went to the dunes. Well, this is really a funny story because uh, after QP Rich died and Sid Wyman died, George Duckworth's stepson, you know, had to go through some papers and in their estate. And they found a document that showed that Wyman made a deal with Lansky in some way to not buy the dunes. And at the time it happened, when they didn't go to the Thunderbird, uh, Rich and Duckworth were not aware of it. So it was a secret deal Wyman made. And uh, all the details I don't have completely, but I was told this firsthand by Duckworth. So it was kind of an interesting situation. There was a little animosity, but, you know, they didn't really know what was going on. And Wyman was a terrific gambler. I mean, he gambled all the time. So it, was, it might have been a question of a finder's fee he got, which they say that there was. And uh, maybe it took him out of a big jam. He was in gambling all of his money away. He gambled all the time. So. And Hoffa was around too. There's Teamsters involved in the story, Jimmy Hoffa and his contacts, right? Yeah, Hoffa came was a regular guest at the Dunes. Uh, I saw him in there myself with his wife. He was standing next to his wife in the slot machine. Everybody liked it. Everybody liked it. And uh, uh, he came to check in one time. No one knew he was there. And uh, so uh, the uh, secretary to Major Riddle, uh, he called his, Hoffa called Major Riddle's office. And Major Riddle's secretary picked the phone up. She said, hey, this is Jimmy Hoffa. You have a key for me? Oh, yes, Mr. Hoffa. And she brought it, brought it right down. Well, she got chewed out by, by Riddle. I mean, Riddle didn't want anyone to see that he was there. He was, you know, like a secret guest under an assumed name. But Hoffa was the guy that put the money to build a high-rise, to let the dunes expand. Hoffa was the guy that let Caesar's Palace open. And uh, he was quite an individual. However, there was a, a dark side of him, and uh, there was a lot of connections between uh, the Teamsters and organized crime. And um, uh, when Hoffa you know, went to jail uh, for basically doing a deal with, with a kickback in, in, in Tennessee, 
he had to go to jail. He had to go to court there. You know, uh, uh, he, after being convicted, you know, he went to jail, and then he 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 uh, lobbied Nixon and, and and family to get him out, and he finally got out. But Hoffa was, you know, was barred from being uh, reelected as a Teamster president uh, for a certain time, and he didn't know that. And he was he was walking around, going around, you know, telling him that telling everyone that the Teamsters, you know, were not the way it was when he ran it, and the mob didn't like it, and that's that's surely the reason that Hoffa probably got um, killed and and never found again. Incidentally, I believe that Dan Muldea, a famous, very noted writer um has got it right he believes he knows where hoffa was buried and uh, you can find that on the internet uh look at the hoffa good hoffa moldea you'll you'll find uh, a great story and i think they're going to fbi is going to discover where he actually was buried yeah i actually think i read a recent story like they say now he's under a bridge so i don't know he could be anywhere but he he controlled all the teamsters retirement funds right so he could put that money which was a huge amount of money wherever he wanted. It's an immense amount of control. I think he spent a lot of it in Vegas in different places. So he, he did, he you know, uh, you know, I think the value of the Teamsters fund that then was four million, four billion dollars in today's money. That's like about what, uh, 15 or 18 billion dollars. So yeah, it was a lot of money. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, well, I, I, I skipped something here, but let me go back just a second. Okay. You know, Jake Gottlieb, not to be confused with Gottsman, Jake Gottlieb, Gottlieb was the one that bought the dunes out of bankruptcy. Okay, when it went bankrupt with the first bunch of guys, Gottsman. Gottlieb uh, was from Chicago. Uh, there's no question there's some connections for him with the Chicago outfit. That's also the mob, they call it the outfit. And uh, he had a brother by the name of Colonel John Gottlieb, who was the adjutant general to Eisenhower during World War II, who lived in Beverly Hills. I got to know him. And he was a guy that would go out in the Los Angeles area and some other areas using Jimmy Hoffa's Teamsters funds to buy properties, to buy a motel or to buy a business. And the, and, and the reason was... Of course, to make some money, but to whatever employees belong to that business, to get them enrolled as Teamsters. He was a right. big promoter. And I found an article in the Los Angeles Times where, where uh, Hoffa says, Colonel Gottlieb and Jay Gottlieb were my first customers. And they were the ones where the Dunes got their big loan and went forward and forward. In the mid-70s, mid uh, the major owners of the Dunes Hotel got indicted for skimming. That's taking money off the tables that's never reported. And uh, the FBI uh, trained some agents, a two-man team, to sit on, on each side of a crap table with a clicker in their hand to count how much money was dropped into the drop box. And the drop box is where you take currency and exchange it for chips. And you give the chips to the player you drop the currency in the drop box. So they clocked it back and forth. So they, they got indicted and they finally went to court. And uh, the Dunes used a very famous local attorney by the name of Harry Claiborne, who was a, who was a, a, 
a judge, a federal judge, who was impeached and, and got convicted. But he was a great trial attorney. And Morris Schenker, who was their attorney from St. Louis, who eventually bought the Dunes. So these guys that were indicted were major officers in the company. We're talking about, you know, quite a bit of money. And so they didn't fire them. They just basically said, okay, we're going to take our shares and we're going to sell our shares to the Riviera owner. And they did that. Of course, that never went through. And uh, uh, so they got the shares back. They beat the case and they went right back to work. That's what's really interesting about this. Uh, there's a, the way they beat the case is that they, they, they challenged the knowledge of gambling to these agents. Like uh, the defense attorney said, okay, Mr. Agent, tell me what a two-way 11 is on a crap table. Well, the agent wouldn't even know what that means. Two-way 11 means one for the player and one for the dealers. That's what it meant. Uh, or what's a, give me a, a seven, give me a six on a hop. They asked that question. They couldn't answer it. A six and a hop would mean any way you can you can make a six. It could be, uh, he, they might specify it. Like, uh, give me a four-two on the hop. They would pay like, uh, uh, I think it's 30 to one. 15 to one, excuse me, on the hop. And they would pay that on a crap table. But they couldn't answer the question. So when it came down to uh, an abundance of proof, they never really had the proof. They couldn't prove that they stole this money or, or skimmed it and they got uh, uh, they were freed they were cleared of all the charges but here's the funny the most interesting thing of all this was this this court case happened in Reno Nevada in the Bruce Thompson courtroom a federal judge I when I did my research for my book I wanted to see a transcript of this trial I gave them all the names of individuals and the company, M&R Investment Corporation, and none of it was found. I hired an attorney to do a search. It couldn't be located. It's like it never happened. There's no written transcripts. There's no records. There's nothing. That's a real mystery. To this day, I would love to know about that. If anybody out there knows about that or has a copy of those transcripts, I'll give you a reward if you can produce those for me. Uh, so that's, to me, incredible. I mean, I, I mean, I'm talking about a skimming case by the federal you know, by the, by the, prosecuted by the, by the Justice Department. There's no record of it anywhere. That, that, that's a beauty for me. I, I don't understand that one. That is incredible. Usually those court cases are some of the best rec recorded things ever. I uh, mean, they're, right. they're somewhere in the system, somewhere. You can find old court cases. They hold those boxes forever, or microfiche or something. But to not find that is very, very unusual. And, and I, I spent some money to do that. I mean, I just didn't do a... Uh, cursory search on the internet. I hired someone to, you know, whatever it takes to find it, let's find it. They could not find anything. That's oh, a story. Incredible. It's just one of many stories associated with the dunes. I mean, and it really wasn't, I mean, now the property's in the, the midst of the strip, but when it first was built, it was kind of off to the side, right? It wasn't in the center of Vegas. It was way out by the airport almost, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's nothing, you know, up and down north and south of it. You know, uh, it was in the middle of no place. But it worked when they brought business into the hotel. When they filled the rooms and built more rooms, it worked. And that's the secret of an operation. Good gambling, good food, good rooms. You keep them right oh. there in the hotel. Don't let, you know, don't let your hotel be a sleeping hotel. 
and have all your customers go across the street to better food and better shows. Oh, good point. Yeah, that's the that's the key. What was the connection between the Dunes and the Kennedy assassination? Well, this is this is a story I almost didn't want to write, but you know, I, I kind of like. I was in high school when Kennedy got assassinated, and I, I I liked him. I thought he was a great guy. Today, he would be considered a, a very conservative Republican, basically the way he thought. He wasn't such a liberal as people as today are. But he, he was a very interesting guy. And uh, I remember uh, when I was working at the, uh, at the California Club, uh, a friend of our family's, his name was Dick Westbrook, who lived in Burbank, who was from St. Louis. And he got ran out of St. Louis. They called him by the hots, by some, you know, mob guys. And the, he, he moved to Burbank because... Burbank had a, had a big baseball field built by the city that the St. Louis Browns would come and do their winter baseball practice right there. He built a motel right across the street. Hmm. And he was a great guy. But I was a kid. I went to school with his son. And his son got in some trouble. Uh, we went to a little Catholic school. And he got into some trouble, not in school, but someplace else. And the city and the judge, they were, they were done with him. They were going to say, Either you move out of town or you're going to go to jail. So his father went to my dad and said, listen, can he come up and live with you guys? I'll get them a, a way to make some money and you'll make some money and it'll be great. So we went to the Frontier Hotel, which was mob run by the Detroit guys. This was like 1968, 66, somewhere in there. I don't remember exactly. And uh, he got us this concession for his son and I to sell them soap. You know, the, the cleaning soap to clean the kitchens and in the dishwashers and in the washing machines and all that stuff. And we, we made like a, each of us, we made like a thousand dollars a month for selling soap to them. Right. This guy, uh, Westbrook, had a couple of friends and one of them was uh, one of the biggest, Johnny Stone, one of the biggest bookies in Dallas. And then there was a friend of theirs, his name was R.D. Matthews, who wore a patch over his eye who I realized when I'm writing the book, you know, that's interesting. I, how do I know all these guys from Texas? And then uh, Johnny Stone, they knew Jack Ruby, like wow. the back of your hand, right? And uh, so so then I'm writing my book, and I, and I didn't think about putting anything about that in my book. But I'm writing my book one day, and I'm sitting in an outdoor cafe. I'm just having a drink, a little lemonade, and I'm writing. I got a little manuscript with me, and, a friend of mine I hadn't seen in quite a while comes. He was inside and he walked out. He said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm working on my book." He says, "Oh yeah?" He says, "Well, someday we'll have to sit down. And let me tell you about uh, a very interesting thing about the Kennedy assassination you might like to know about." I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah." So I made an appointment to meet him, and he told me the story of how, you know, he was uh, he was a sniper in the army. And he got out of the army and the Marines, excuse me, the Marines. He got out of the Marines. He was under a guy by the name of Chester, Chesty Pulley, who was a interesting character. And uh, my friend, I'm going to leave his name completely out of this conversation. But he he basically said I was I got out of the, out of the Marines and I went to work uh, in Alabama, where I'm from, in a place called Phoenix City. Uh, and then, uh, then I went to work in uh, Hot Springs. 
and I, got, I learned to deal 21 craps on the wheel. I said roulette wheel. And so in, in those days, in the, in the you know, early 50s, there was no dealing schools in Las Vegas. You had to be taught by a friend or an old-time dealer. You know, he had to teach you the game. They wouldn't just right. teach you for five bucks. They had to know you. So you basically you were a referral. If you went to work someplace, they'd say, who taught you how to deal? They'd say, so-and-so did. Well, you better not do anything wrong because it's going to reflect on that guy. So he's back in Hot Springs, and uh, the owner of the casino gets a phone call from Mo Dalitz, who was the owner, major stockholder at the Desert Inn Hotel. Mo Dalitz came out of Detroit, a personal friend of Jimmy Hoffa from day one. Mo Dalitz had a laundry back there. Hoffa had Teamsters unions connected with his laundries. Uh, and, you know, and Hoffa was from Detroit as well. So, uh, so he says, uh, uh, Mo, you got it. Mo says, you got anybody I can send out to me? Says, yeah, I got a guy you might like. He's, he just got out of the Marines not too long ago. Uh, he learned to deal real good. He's a good real waller. He's also an expert shot, uh, you know, shooter. Oh, he, Mo says, that's, that's funny. So anyway, send him out. So this friend of mine goes out to Las Vegas. He checks into the casino cage. Uh, they say, here's your apron. Uh, here's your name badge. You start on, on Monday or whatever it is. You sign in at the 21 pit, and that's it. And so he goes to work, and he's there about two weeks. And you know, Mo Dalitz doesn't inquire yet until he, you know, gives the guy a chance to get into the show and get into the deal. And uh, he asks about him. He says the guy's a pretty good dealer. So Mo Dalitz calls him up to his office. He says, "I'd like to meet you." And so he comes up. And he says, uh, um, you're doing a good job, and I'm glad that I hired you. And they said that you were a good sharpshooter. He says, one day, let's let's go out to the desert here and shoot some tin cans and stuff. Oh, he says, sure, I'd love to do that. Now, when you say out to the desert, in those days, you walked outside, walked one block, that's the desert. There was right. nothing there. There was absolutely right. nothing. So they did that. And this, this friend of mine, Mr. X, you know, he could shoot a dime at a pretty good distance. He was very good. And Dalitz was impressed. He said, oh, maybe sometime I could use you for something. He kind of laughed and left it go. Anyway, this friend of mine worked for the Desert Inn for a year or two, and then they, they promoted him to, to an executive. And then pretty soon he worked for Dalitz doing special projects, you know, checking on things and taking care of things that, you know, it takes a guy on the outside to do, run errands, many, many things. Things that you could, tr for people you could trust. And this fella... You'll read in the book a little bit more about the errands he did. Uh, I, I think he, when Dalitz had some trouble with people trying to extort him, uh, I think this gentleman took care of it successfully. So Dalitz trusted him. So he's out on the, uh, 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 an errand thing for Dalitz, and he's all done with it, and he's coming back to give him the information. And Dalitz's secretary says, they're out in the country club. That's a two-story building that overlooks the Desert Inn golf course. This is right on the strip. Beautiful golf course. The clubhouse is all windows. You can see everywhere. So Alan, go, uh, this friend of mine, goes up to the, the doorway to the stairs, and he says, oh, there's a meeting going on. I have to tell him you're here. So they went up and got Dalitz. Dalitz says, oh, come on, let him up. And uh, Dalitz brings him up, and he says, I want you to meet some guys. And They open a meeting room, and there's some gentlemen sitting at a table. And my friend was startled. He saw President Johnson. He saw uh, Nick Savella, 
Sam Giancana, and I believe it was also Carlos Marcelo and somebody else at this wow. table. Now, there was no heat on these guys in those days, other than uh, Marcelo had a little heat on him because of being deported, but he was part of the owner of the, of the Tropicana, you know, in the old days. And right. uh, but so Lyndon Johnson. Savella's a, just for people, just a sec to interrupt, but Savella's an important part of this book. So he features very much in the St. Louis mob. Sorry. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, uh, Dale says, gentlemen, this is the fellow I wanted you to say hello to. They said hello, and that was it. And he says, talk to you later. A day later, um, uh, Dalich calls my friend up to his office, Mr. Rex, and he says, uh, you'd like to do a little job for us, maybe? How, how do you feel about shooting a politician? Uh, and my friend answered, well, I don't, I don't, kill, I don't kill women and politicians. Something like that. Something to kind of. I got it in the book, right? Of there's so many. There's over 400, 500 pages in the book. Right. Make sure many, many right. stories. Many, many yeah. stories. Yeah. So uh, excuse me if I make a little mistake. Don't hang me, everyone. But uh, he says I don't mess with politicians. It causes too much trouble. Unless it's in another country and it's against our country, I won't go up against a politician ever, ever. Now we don't know if Savella. Our uh, uh, Dalitz was talking about killing Castro. It could have been Castro, could have been, and it could have been, could have been anybody. Right. So, you know, so I, I I interviewed my friend two times, both on tape, and talked to him without tape maybe two or three times, and I said, "Are you sure Lyndon Johnson was there?" He says, "Absolutely." I said, "Did he say anything to you?" He says, "No." He just looked at me. You know, I didn't believe him. So I went to the presidential library. I went to Lyndon Johnson's presidential library. And I found out that he visited the Desert Inn Hotel in 1963. And he stayed in room 345. And when I heard that, I was like, wow. And then when I did some research about Hoffa and how Hoffa uh, actually bribed the guy that testified against him, who was a fellow teamster, a million dollars, to change his testimony against Hoffa. And then before that, he even tried to get this Edward Parton, who was written up in Life magazine, who was given the most extensive lie detector test by the FBI in the past. He tried to get him to kill Robert F. Kennedy. Then I changed my whole opinion about about Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, you know, I really believe that the mob had a great deal of doing in killing Kennedy. And uh, I, I go I go into some details there. You might find it interesting to you. But uh, but just putting putting Johnson in the same room with Savella and Marcello is very the guy swears, yeah, yeah, the guy swears to it. And yeah, really uh, still cool. alive. And uh, uh, I'm sure someday I'm going to get a, a phone call from somebody talk to me, but I, I'm not looking forward to that, to tell you the truth. It, well, Gino, this is a really fascinating book. You've got many, many stories. We could probably talk about the stories in this book for four hours, but we're at about 50 minutes. Uh, how do you want to wrap this up? Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we... Uh, well, you know, uh, yeah, I'd like to give a... I have a Facebook, the Dunes Hotel 
Facebook page, Dunes Hotel. If anybody has any Dunes stories, I'd love to have them put on there. If anybody has any corroborating evidence that they can give us, love to have it. Don't be afraid to speak up. I'll protect your names. Uh, love to have you. Uh, I hope everyone reads the book. You know, to me, it wasn't about making money on this book. It was about telling the story that had to be told. And I, I felt that uh, I did my job. I think I did my job as best I could do with what I had to work with. And you can get a hold of me at Gino Minari. That's one word, G-E-N-O-M-U-N-A-R-I.com, GinoMinari.com, and on the Dunes Facebook page. And, awesome. uh, and I, I hope this uh, gets your listeners interested, uh, William. I hope they respond to it. I hope uh, that you get a lot more questions you have to ask me. Well, there's a lot of information in this book. I mean, I feel like we kind of just went over the surface. Like, there's a lot of other details. There's many stories about St. Louis mob and all these other people, and just the connections are really something else, just like it's in your title. And again, the title of the book is Las Vegas' Dunes Hotel, Casino, and Country Club. Country Club. The mob, the connections, the stories, and the author is Gino Minari, just published January 12th, 2022. Thank you so much for your time, Gino. William, thank you for having me on the show. Awesome. Take care. Stay there. Stay there.